iShares and S&P Dow Jones Indices are proud to support the Wealth Management Edge podcast and financial advisors. With more than 1,250 products worldwide, iShares is dedicated to empowering millions of people to make their money work for them. Visit www.ishares.com to learn more. S&P Dow Jones Indices is the largest global resource for essential index-based concepts, data, and research, and home to iconic financial market indicators such as the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average iShares and S&P Dow Jones Industries are unaffiliated entities. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Wealth Management Edge podcast. This is Mark Bruno. I'm the Managing Director at Informa Connected, the Wealth Management Group here. And I know I say this at the beginning of every podcast that I'm very excited about the guests we have on today. I absolutely mean it. No question about it. Mark Cohen, Executive Vice President at LPL Financial. Mark, known you for quite some time. We've had a chance to catch up over the years. And you relatively, actually, relatively new role at LPL, but you've probably been there a lot longer than I <laughs> remember. Thank you very much for joining us, Mark. And please tell us a little bit about uh, your position at LPL and what you're focused on now. Yeah, thanks, Mark. As you said, we've known each other for a long time. This is probably the first time we're talking in a more formal, formalized environment. So this is going to be fun. It's very uncomfortable. <laughs> to your point, though, I've been at LPL for close to five years now. Um, and I joined the firm back in the tail end of 2018 in a capacity to help LPL really evolve who we are um, and expand out the addressable market that we have within wealth management well beyond the traditional independence base that LPL has uh, has historically has historically served. And during that time, we've launched a variety of new affiliation models and ways that we can partner with wirehouse advisors looking to be able to transition to independence and find their autonomy, expand our value proposition to already independent advisors, expand into um, and really revitalize our business with the RIA segment and and be able to really just expand out how LPL shows up as a meaningful platform and and business partner for independent advisors as we go as we go forward. I was recently asked to uh, to evolve my uh, my um, my position here at the firm and so I've recently taken on um, a role as leading leading strategy for LPL broadly trying to figure out who do we want to be as we as we grow up so to speak and what what does the firm look like over the course of the next 10 years what are the opportunities and the threats uh, that we should be aware of and, and and really look to to be able to take advantage of oh it's very exciting i did not realize that congrats i couldn't think of a better person for the role and actually makes it that much more you know, exciting for me to to kind of jump into some of the questions that we have for you here on the podcast with wealth management edge and our event and the podcast and everything surrounding this franchise we're really focused on two things. Um, we want to understand the future of wealth management, and we also want to understand what's driving growth in this space. Um, and I know you work with hundreds of advisors you know, in any given year. You have visibility into thousands of advisors' productivity, their activity levels, what's driving growth, what isn't driving growth. So I'm incredibly excited to hear what you have to say about what's happening across the wealth management landscape. And maybe we can start with growth, Mark. Um, you know, it's been... A pretty interesting stretch to you know put it lightly over the last 18 months in the wealth management industry after a fairly benign you know decade let's call it where there was a lot of growth some of it came through the markets a lot through m a um, starting in 2022 we saw incredible levels of volatility of course right um, one of the most difficult years i think financial advisors have probably ever experienced in their careers there were some firms though that experienced some growth right and still are um, it was much more strategic, managed growth. So when you look at the firms that are thriving and growing right now is in more challenging envir environments, what are they doing differently 
from all the other firms in this space that are are not growing or maybe even contracting? And is there a difference in how they think about and approach growth every day? Yeah, Mark, Mark it's a great question. We actually recently did a study of, uh, of, of our advisors trying to determine the highest performing advisors, what, what separates them? What are the attributes that make them a little bit different? And in an environment like 2022 with the, with the volatility, how are they still growing organically at astronomical levels, even in spite of what's going on around them at a macro level uh, when others are potentially challenged? Um, and so what we found was that there's this group of advisors that we work with who grow at a rate that's 10 times faster than the average financial advisor. Um, and obviously that's a huge number. And so when you think about looking at those folks and identifying what is different about them, there's a slew of things that they do correctly and, and really do well as you would expect. But there are three things that differentiate them more than anything else. The first is their use of technology. Uh, so more, more often than not, they're using packaged software as opposed to going out and building their own bespoke integrated tech stack. Um, and the real benefit of that is that, A, they don't have to worry about the integrations and the, and the support and administrative aspects that go along with it. But B, they're also in a position where they're able to leverage pre-built automated workflows to find efficiency in their business. Um, and so those workflows allow them to spend a lot more of their time focused on their clients and their client relationships and then growing their business more so than the administrative or operational aspects uh, that come along with um, that, that come along with um, their, their business and, and their responsibilities typically. The other thing they're doing on the tech side is they're utilizing um, client portals and they're encouraging and spending a lot more time encouraging their clients to leverage client portal a lot more than most advisors do. And they're finding a lot of efficiency there as well by digitizing some of those critical client touch points um, when it comes to transactions or, or just random questions that might come through because the client has it right at their fingertips if they're utilizing those, those portals correctly. The second area that they're, that they're differentiating is really with their time management in general. What we're finding is that those who are growing more quickly are spending north of 70% of their time exclusively on client engagements and on business development. And as a result of that, they're choosing to outsource other functions either to their staff and they're, they're ramping and they're hiring people around them to handle other aspects um, of what their core responsibilities would be, or they're outsourcing it to third parties. We're seeing in particular two key areas for this are on compliance and investment management. So on the compliance front, how do they how do they leverage a platform or how do they share how do they share in their risk management with other parties um, and oftentimes using a shared ADV type of model um, or some type of method where they don't have to own risk management and compliance responsibilities themselves um, as, as one key driver, mm. alleviating a lot of um, a lot of their responsibility and time that would otherwise be spent there. And then the second is on the investment management front, where they're able to outsource model management, rebalancing, um, and really the overall portfolio uh, portfolio management aspects to others who who are able to do that. Uh, when we took a look through this, and and we've done a different study that I'll that I'll integrate um, together with this one uh, for this purpose, is that um, investment management is not driving value. You talked before about. M&A and, and really how this industry continues to grow, investment management and proprietary investment management is not something that drives material value. It's not something that is going to, in most cases, win you that next client relationship. And so instead, these folks are outsourcing that and they're focusing more on the, the magic that's created at the kitchen table when they're sitting there across the table from their prospective client and engaging with them in a meaningful way and showing what the empathy is that they can uniquely bring into that relationship. And then the third area is their teaming. 
Um, so the advisors who work with in groups of two or three or four or even more advisors in a in a really well integrated fashion to be able to serve their clients are growing significantly more than anyone else. And what we found really particularly interesting um, in, in this regard is that when you look at the teams, there's actually a, a certain type of team uh, that's growing faster than any of the others. And that's a team that, that represents a, a strong amount of diversity among the individuals who are on that team. So when you look at teams that are made up of different genders or you bring in some um, um, ethnicity um, diversity into the equation, those teams that are that are representing a diverse group as opposed to it all being the same homogenous group of, of, of advisors, if there's a little bit of diversity thrown in there, they're growing at about a third more quickly than any of the other teams that we see. Um, and so in general, there's other factors, of course, around holistic advice and financial planning or unique marketing strategies. But in general, the technology, um, the, the um, time management and the teaming aspects end up leading to these guys, as I said before, growing at 10 times more quickly um, than really any of the other advisors. So that's it, Mark. That's the podcast. Everybody who's listening, just they just found out everything they need to do. Go and follow <laughs> they want that. to drive more growth and success. Honestly, you Go follow really that touched, treasure map. <laughs> you touched on a lot of you know the key levers and we don't always talk about you know, the workflows right or some of the the different sort of tech offerings that people are using on this podcast but you know it's important right um because it's not always about adding clients right it's not just about business development um i've had some advisors say to me you know i don't have such aggressive growth goals because if i do add clients it's usually at the expense of my existing clients right um so if you actually truly want to grow in a way that is responsible and sustainable, you need to be focused on all the different things that you just said. I mean, I could sum it all up by just in one word scale, right? Um, no and Mark, when you're thinking about growth, from our standpoint, we're looking at three different levers that end up equating to overall growth. So you're, you need to bring in new clients, of course. You need to help your existing clients grow more quickly. And so that's not only um, uh, effective investment, but it's also how are you gaining additional wallet share or what other opportunities exist with your existing clients? And then you need to keep your clients happy so that they're not walking out the door. And if you're doing all three of those components well, you're going to be net positive in a drastic way from a growth standpoint. And it's important because oftentimes when we think about growth, we're talking about just bringing new clients in the door or potentially acquiring new advisors and bringing new clients in the door through that method. But it's really also important that you're focused on serving those existing clients as well, helping them grow that much more effectively. And then, of course, keeping them around and keeping them satisfied. Yeah, and I think it's a great framework for anyone who's listening to this podcast to really process the right way to grow, right? Um, you know, adding clients is just one piece of it, right? Scaling your operations, you know, having the right technology, focusing on the core functions within your firm that can truly differentiate you. Um, that's what when we think about the most successful wealth management firms, not just in 2023, but three to five years from now, um, that's what will drive you know, the difference between the firms that thrive and the firms that are barely going to survive. Um, so great place to start the podcast. Um, I do want to turn the page a bit. And when we talk about growth, you mentioned M&A. It's obviously been a huge driver of growth for many of the larger firms in the wealth management space in particular. I'm at the Deals and Dealmakers Conference right now that Echelon hosts. And that's all you know. we're talking about, obviously, is M&A here. Um, and you just see how even in more challenging markets, 
there are still incredible levels of M&A activity, right? Still larger and larger firms, right? And very strong valuations um, that are defining the M&A landscape. So if we were to look at the firms that are thriving once again, right? And we were think, looking at how they're approaching M&A and incorporating it into their growth strategy, what's their mindset and how are they executing? Yeah, it's, it, that's also a great question. So when you think about M&A, I, I like to try to bucket it into two different groups. Um, and, and it's really what's the strategy behind the acquisition that you're pursuing. Um, on one side, are you looking for uh, are you looking at acquisitions um, as a means of um, driving um, growth and driving conformity into a business model that, that you're looking for and then ultimately scaling to a pretty significant degree? Um, in which case, you're, you're typically going to be looking for advisors who might be able to come in transition their business into your practice and then and then over time be able to transition out so that you then have your your methods of serving those clients take over and, and you continue on. And I think of that almost as like a sell and exit sell and exit approach. On the other side, you're going to have other firms that might look at M&A as an opportunity to scale in a different way where they're scaling with bringing in additional um, complementary capabilities or complementary service offerings. Um, and those are going to be a little bit more of the sell and stay type of models, typically, where you're bringing in um, additional um, cultural fits and you're bringing in people who might have different skill sets that uh, than you otherwise would have have yourselves. And I think that those are very, two very different approaches. Um, when you think about the former, um, the, the the firms that are probably looking at more of the sell and exit type of strategy, and they don't have to exit immediately, but over some near term period, um, typically they're they're out there and they're they're building some very regimented business processes and they're establishing themselves so that they could be that well-oiled machine. I think of it similar to how you would think of McDonald's operating. You walk into any McDonald's across the world and you order a Big Mac, you know what you're getting. And I think those firms are really trying to build the same type of systematic approaches to delivering financial advice that you would in a way that you would think about a Big Mac. When you walk in and you talk to a financial advisor from this firm, um, you know what you're going to get and you know what that experience is through financial planning all the way to investments. It's all it's all typically centrally, centrally managed and, uh, and very consistent. Uh, so there's a lot of investment that needs to go into that infrastructure. On the flip side, when you look at the other uh, when you look at the other aspects, the firms that are doing uh, th that are doing the best in, in, in trying to grow themselves um, with uh, with additional capabilities that are brought in through acquisition. Um, really, I think from from their lens, it's less about investment into technology or investment into other capabilities themselves. It's more into more investment into setting up the right structure. The M and A models uh, today are so competitive that you really need to build that field, field of dreams before you start hiring or or bringing in folks through M and A. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the investment goes. It's building out the brand. It's building out a reputation uh, that, uh, that that's pretty sound. It's building out what your compensation models are and your human resources capabilities uh, to be able to ingest in those acquisitions. And then it's clearly spending time strategically to identify who do I want to be as a firm and where are the opportunities for me to perhaps complement my existing capabilities, whether it's geographic or it's specialization um, or, or, or something different, perhaps. Uh, and how do you how do you build out what that looks like? Um, so that you know who you're targeting and you're able to go out and be able to bring in those acquisitions a lot more effectively. Yeah, I, you know, I do have a question. That I want to talk about minority investments and I also want to talk about tuck-in activity. But while you're on those lines, um, I can't help but ask, 
Um, I brought it up yesterday on a panel that I was speaking on at Deals and Dealmakers. Jeff Deco brought it up from Wealth Enhancement Group again today. We are notoriously bad as an industry at coming back a year after a deal closes and saying what worked and what didn't, right? Whether you're the acquirer or the seller or you're the media organization, right, that covers the deal on the front end. Um, And now that we can look back over the last four or five, six years and know that there have been over a thousand transactions of material size that have taken place in this space, in theory, we should have a pretty good track record, or at least a good pool of data to look at to say, you know, how many deals have been successful and created real synergy value, right? Um, And how many have not? So I'd I'd love your take on that, right? Well, there have been hundreds of deals. What percentage would you say have been truly successful in creating new synergy value? And when the deals are successful, what are they doing right? Mark, unfortunately, I don't have the the, uh, the hard data here to give you exact percentages the way I did on the organic growth side. But what I can tell you is that anecdotally, when you look at those two different buckets that, that we were talking about a moment ago, and you look at the firms that are acquiring advisors and helping usher them off into, into their retirement, typically the sellers in those transactions are a lot more satisfied and excited about the transaction even years later than are the individuals who are selling and staying in most cases. Um, and I think that the reason for that uh, is that in general, we as an industry probably could have shown up a lot better over the last number of years and have a huge opportunity going forward to be able to show up better for those mid-career advisors who have gotten themselves into a position where they are a key principle of a firm, they own the responsibility of, of the operations and the enterprise that they've built, and they're also a financial advisor. Uh, we hear the story time and time again of these advisors who are in their 40s, maybe their 50s, they're not anywhere near ready for retirement, um, yet they're looking to potentially sell their business. When you ask them the question of why, a lot of it comes down to the fact that they're overwhelmed and they're looking to simplify and quiet some of the noise and really get back to what it is that they love doing, uh, which is being a financial advisor and engaging with their clients and unlocking the potential for their clients. And so they're looking to sell as a means of gaining access to services or capabilities that help them operate a bit more efficiently. They don't have to worry anymore about running payroll or cutting the check to the landlord or other aspects that go along with operating their own business in addition to serving their clients. And I think as an industry, there's an opportunity there for us to to do a better job of bringing forward services and capabilities that help these advisors both deliver great advice to their clients and expand out what their value proposition is there, not have to sell their business to get access to trust services or tax planning or estate services or specialized insurance uh, that that some of the larger firms may have built out themselves, but rather hire a a service to be able to expand out their capabilities or also to be able to help them run thriving businesses. How How do you leverage an outsourced provider to manage the accounting of your business or to handle some of the HR functions or help you with a marketing plan uh, that helps you grow that much more aggressively instead of you selling your business to be able to gain access to these areas. And I think if we as an industry showed up in a more effective way with better capabilities to help them both deliver great advice as well as run a thriving business themselves and keep them in the captain's chair of their business, owning that business, making the key decisions, setting the vision. I think what you'd find is that we actually see these businesses growing even faster and our industry mm. continue to grow. Um, Cerulli just published some data last year that said that uh, if you look at the 
course over the course of the past 10 years, the end investors, the consumers in our marketplace here in the United States uh, have uh, have materially shifted their perspective. And they're they're in a position now where um, about 60 percent of end investors would, would like to work with an independent financial advisor. Um, and to me, that, that speaks loudly because what it does is it means that the personalized experience that an independent financial advisor is able to deliver is that much richer than what's able to be garnered either through automated systems or tools, retail services, or even candidly, the wirehouses or these homogenous financial, uh, financial advice systems that exist um, because they're able to be more personalized. And if we can enable financial advisors to maintain their autonomy and their independence for a longer period of time, while not feeling stretched thin the way that we hear from them and thereby feeling as though they have to sell their business as an industry, we're going to continue to see that much more success. It's an interesting take um, and not one that I've heard before on this podcast. So thank you uh, for bringing some unique perspective to the table. I figured you would. And along those lines, actually, I mentioned before, I wanted to get your take on minority investments um, because they're obviously much more common now. There are much more, many more established players in the space. Um, and I think it actually is connected to the thought that you just shared. Um, there are a lot of people who are looking to potentially cash out some chips, right? Uh, uh, and also maybe offload some responsibility without forfeiting full control of their business, right? Um, they're still thinking about growth. Um, they're still thinking about really building a business and not exiting one, right? Um, so I'm curious in your view, um, I know it's an area that you've spent some time, but what role are minority investments playing in the M&A ecosystem right now? And what specific problems do they solve for that maybe some of our listeners should be thinking about if they are looking for a partner and they are looking for capital? Yeah, Mark, especially as cost of capital has risen uh, over the course of the past year, there's no question that we're seeing a significant uptick in minority investments um, or some form of lower capital deployment type of model that still that still drives alignment between two enterprises or two businesses. Um, and I think that that model of minority investment can be incredibly powerful uh, if it's unlocked in the right way. Now, there's a few watchouts there. Um, you want to make sure that you're doing appropriate due diligence into who your minority investor is, uh, that you're spending a lot of time setting appropriate expectations, that you're not walking in to that with a preconceived notion that your minority investor is going to offer you a tremendous amount of lead flow or is going to position you and offer you free services into certain areas or whatever you might be expecting. You want to really make sure that you have a solid understanding of what they are able to deliver upon and what they intend to deliver upon. And then from there, um, make, make sure that you're documenting that appropriately. Uh, you want to make sure that you have a sense and you have an understanding of what type of rights you're offering to that minority investor. Uh, we've seen some minority investments that I would think of as minority in dollars, but majority in control. Um, yeah. And uh, and that's a really dangerous position to be in, uh, where I've seen some of these deals where, where people have taken a, a minority investor who, uh, based on the, the new contractual and, um, and corporate governance they put in place, um, needs to have um, uh, approval authority over any and hiring anyone over $100,000 into the business, as an example. Um, and at that point, are you really still an independent business operator and an independent advisor who, who's able to go and make those decisions yourself, or are you subjected to the whim of somebody else? Um, and then the last thing I'd say is you really want to understand what the exit is. Um, anyone who's coming in as a minority investor is looking to put their money to work, and they're looking for a return. Um, and so ultimately, uh, they're going to look for an exit at some point. Some are on shorter horizons, some are on longer horizons. 
But at some point, they're going to look for a return on their investment uh, and they're going to look for an exit opportunity. And I think it's important that walking in the front door, you need to understand where the back door is and what their expectation is. Uh, and what they're committing you to in terms of what that exit is. Uh, are they guaranteeing themselves certain minimum returns on their initial investment? We see that all the time. Um, and that's dangerous because, again, uh, if they're guaranteeing themselves a certain return on their investment, that might into that might eat, eat into your eventual uh, proceeds uh, from your eventual exit and, uh, and really positions them much more into um, uh, a, a, a greater sense of control in the business than otherwise. Um, are they able to force the sale of the business? Are they able to drag you along? If they were to sell their business, are you automatically being dragged um, along during that process and thereby selling your control as well without your without your consent? Um, so I think those are all watchouts to pay attention to on the way in. But if you can get comfortable with each of those areas, aligning with a minority partner who can bring not only capital, but also hopefully be able to bring some strategic expertise and, and strategic value and then potentially add a third leg of operational value into that to be able to bring some additional efficiency or value from an operating lens um, into your business can be incredibly valuable uh, while, while keeping your, yourself ideally in that captain's chair I was talking about. Yeah, I, I appreciate you getting into the real the do's and don'ts, right? Because you know, the minority investment space is very interesting to me. Um, I think it solves for a different problem than a lot of the you have first inning, second inning, maybe even third inning M and A, which was really largely more succession and exit, you know, sales um, than anything. And I, I think it'll play a bigger role moving forward. So thank you for kind of walking us through some of the different considerations. Right, um, it's not talked about all that often. It needs to be talked about a lot more. Yeah, along the lines of something that isn't talked about a lot, or at least we don't have as much visibility into. Um, you know, we see all the research that comes out of the investment banks on a very regular basis talking about M and A activity. That's typically, you know, just straight acquisition, maybe even minority investments at time. Um, but tuck in activity um, is inorganic growth, and we know that there is a lot of tuck in activity right now. Um, there's a lot of dislocation, a lot of disruption in this space, but we just don't have a sense for exactly what the levels are. Right? Um, how would you describe? tuck-in activity right now? And what's driving the bulk of this activity? Yeah, I think if you look at the statistics, you're going to see that advisors are moving around. They're making transitions from one construct to another um, with, with some pretty good regularity. There's a lot of, there's a lot of activity and movement in the space right now. Um, what you're not seeing is as many newly registered RIA firms as you would have a few years back. Um, and so that the rate of advisor movement and change is well outpacing the rate of new RIA registrations, um, at least relative to what we would have seen a few years ago. And I think that, Mark, to your point, that, that ends up leading us to believe that there's a lot of tuck-in type of activity. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I think that what uh, I think it's being driven by a couple of things. I think it, it's being driven by some of the um, efficiency that we were talking about before, outsourcing to a shared ADV type of model where you're sharing in the risk through a tuck by tucking into another RIA, you're sharing in the risk um, can be really powerful. You need to make sure, of course, you understand uh, what that relationship will look like, but it can be powerful to make sure that you are focused on what you want to be focused on. You're benefiting from established technology processes and systems. You're, you're benefiting from, in theory, um, a really well-rounded um, operational support infrastructure. And that can be incredibly powerful. Uh, the reality is when we look at LPL recruiting, we'll bring in a couple thousand advisors a year um, and somewhere around 80% or so, maybe even a little bit higher of that, 
will be tuck-ins um, into established businesses as opposed mm-hmm. to in the established platform as opposed to going out and starting their own firms. And that's that's really robust. Um, and I think that they're finding the benefit that goes along with that. But what we're also seeing more recently, and I think that one of the major drivers of that tuck-in activity perhaps, is that there's a convergence of what used to be recruiting with this M&A activity. And yeah. so um, firms are leveraging minority investment type of models or even acquisition type of models for the purposes of those tuck-ins, whereas they used to just bring someone in and recruit them. And maybe they'd give them a little bit of money up front to be able to help with um, the, the recruiting process and any interruption that occurs as part of a transition. Now, firms are very quickly, I think, over the last several months and couple of years, moving more towards, okay, well, I'll tuck you into my business. But as part of that, I'm going to require that I take a minority investment in your business. It's going to create alignment for us that we're rowing in the right direction. And it's going to create a monetization event for you. And to your point, that a lot of that activity is flying under the radar. It's not reportable. People aren't pushing out press releases as they are with full acquisitions as frequently. Um, But I think that's driving a lot of the activity you're seeing, too, where economically it's making a lot more sense for the advisor who's looking for a home uh, where they can uh, they can participate um, in in the current M&A type of um, frenzy that we're experiencing, maintain a good portion of their own control by doing the minority route, uh, but also benefit from the infrastructure. Yeah, it's amazing. Actually, I had a conversation with somebody earlier today, um, specialty lenders in this space who are actually lending money to RIAs who are going out to do exactly what you just said with tuck-ins, right? They're buying a 20% stake um, in the business and saying, you know, come on in, right? Um, And you don't hear about it because it's not as headline grabbing as, you know, creative planning, buying the Goldman business, for example, um, but it is happening on a very regular basis. Um, and it's something that if it continues to happen at this pace, you know, two, three years from now, um, it, it really could change the composition of the industry. Um, so thank you again for going a little bit deeper in an area that we don't really talk about enough, maybe because we just don't have as much data about it. And it's so fragmented and it's so spread out that it's hard to see. Um, but before we wrap up, Mark, I know we've covered a lot of ground here. We've talked about organic growth um, and some best practices you know, for driving it um, or at least improving productivity. We've talked about inorganic growth, both M&A and tuck-in activity. As you look out and you see firms that are you know, going to be successful, the firms that are going to grow the most over the next, you know, it's called three to five years, and above and beyond just the raw growth, the firms that will grow in the right way. What do you think the most successful wealth management firm of the futures look like? So there's a lot of talk uh, recently in our industry about consolidation and the idea that at some point in the future, there might only be a handful of quote unquote household name type of uh, type of uh, wealth management businesses um, and, and how that's that's where we're headed. And I'll tell you, I, I see the world completely differently than that. It might not surprise you that I see it differently, Mark, uh, but I see the world completely differently than that. And I think that um, I bet every day of the week and probably pretty heavily on entrepreneurs and on advisors who are um, in the position where they are the captain of their ship and they're driving their own success and making their own decisions. They need help and they need their deck people around them and their first mate and they need the folks to be able to make sure that um, they, they're able to um, live up to their highest and best use and, and really sit at the helm and work with their clients and do the right things uh, by their clients and by their teams. But I think that I would bet on that person way more frequently and more more aggressively 
um, than on the concept of consolidation. And so that's where we put our tips as a firm. That's where LPL is investing into is how do we help those advisors deliver great advice, like I said before, and run their thriving businesses. And if I think about growth and I think about the type of capabilities that LPL can bring, but the industry at large can bring to these independent advisors who are operating their own small to mid-sized businesses, uh, we can really help them grow very aggressively uh, by outsourcing some of the noise and, and putting on some uh, some noise canceling headphones for them into the areas that they shouldn't be paying as much attention and focusing much more on how do they best serve their clients. Because the clients are speaking, like I said with the Ceruli data before, the clients want to be working with an independent financial advisor and, and supporting uh, and, and who's able to support them in a more personalized way. And if we can help those independent advisors, um, I think that this, the sky's the limit for them um, as well as for us as an industry. Yeah, and I think your point just around broader growth picture, right? I think the pie for the wealth management industry will get bigger, right? Regardless of how much or how little consolidation takes place. Um, it's still always amazing to me that what a small percentage of uh, the consumer population is actually working with a financial advisor. And obviously the way it's currently constructed, only a small percentage of investor population can afford it, right? That will come down over time, right? And there will be more choice in some cases. And so I, I see that growth is just being exponential. Um, and I think that there's a lot of opportunity for you know the largest of the large and the smallest of the small to continue to be successful three, four, five years from now. So Mark, I, I made it difficult on you because I asked you nothing but big picture questions here. And I think every single question and every response could have been its own independent and isolated podcast. So thank you for being nimble. Thank you for going narrow. Thank you for going deep. Um, but thank you for taking some time to share a little bit about what you've been working on at LPL and what you're seeing across the industry. Yeah, thanks, Mark. This has been a lot of fun. As you said, we covered a lot of ground and there's a lot more that we always could cover um, if uh, if time permits. Yeah, and as always, anytime we ask people to make predictions about you know, three, four, five years from now, that means you have to come back on the podcast in three or four years to just sort of laugh and see how many you got right and how many you got wrong. Uh, so we'll put a date in the calendar for that. But Mark, again, thank you. Always a pleasure talking with you. We appreciate you taking some time out. Mark Cohen, Executive Vice President at LPL, and congrats again on a new role overseeing strategy there as well. Um, on behalf of the entire wealth management team, Mark, thank you for joining us. And on behalf of the entire Wealth Management Group at Informa. Thank you to everybody for joining us here this afternoon. We're very much looking forward to having you all back on the next episode of the Wealth Management Edge podcast soon. Take care, everyone. iShares and S&P Dow Jones Indices are proud to support the Wealth Management Edge podcast and financial advisors. With more than 1,250 products worldwide, iShares is dedicated to empowering millions of people to make their money work for them. Visit www.ishares.com to learn more. S&P Dow Jones Indices is the largest global resource for essential index-based concepts, data, and research, and home to iconic financial market indicators such as the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average. iShares and S&P Dow Jones Industries are unaffiliated entities.